Hi listeners, this is Daniel Schwarzman from Seeking Alpha. We're releasing an extra episode from Value Investors Edge Live. With talk over the shipping sector building in the run-up to IMO 2020 and the recent disruptions and bumps in the oil market, Jay Mintzmeyer decided to share his conversation with Lois Sabraki, CEO, and Jeffrey Prybor, CFO of International Seaways, ticker symbol INSW. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the fourth episode of Value Investors Edge Live. We are recording on the morning of 20 September 2019. We are pleased to host Lois Zabraki and Jeff Prybor, CEO and CFO of International Seaways, stock symbol INSW. We are going to discuss the current state of the crew tanker markets, especially in the wake of the recent Saudi disruptions. We are also looking into the upcoming IMO 2020 regulations and how International Seaways has positioned themselves to benefit from this catalyst. Finally, we will discuss company specifics, including company allocation priorities and potential upside catalysts. For disclosure, I am personally long shares of INSW. Lois and Jeff, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jay. First of all, just because it's current events on our mind today, I mean, the Saudi Arabia disruption, of course, happened uh, this Saturday, Sunday, past week, and there's some kind of uncertain reaction at first, right, in the uh, crude tanker space. Uh, what have you seen thus far in the markets, and how do you think this impacts the medium and longer-term picture for your company? So at the end of the week, Jay, we're in, I think, an ideal situation for uh, the, the, our company and the crude markets at, at the moment. So what we've seen is an increase in time charter equivalent rates from week on week of about $20,000 per day on the VLCCs. Somewhere, uh, the, the uh, Aframaxes are now in the Caribbean, in, in the uh, U.S. Gulf area, around $30,000 per day. So they're, they've nearly doubled in their return. And the uh, Suez Maxis uh, are in between the Vs and the Aframaxis have also spiked up dramatically. So at the moment, it appears that the uh, impact out of Saudi is almost ideal for tankers because you don't have 6 million barrels a day off the market. What you have is a very concerted effort by Saudi to restore their production deliver barrels out of storage. But in addition to that, uh, there are a couple million barrels a day that are likely impacted, albeit it may be temporary. You have all your other uh, demand centers in the east sourcing barrels from the west incrementally in addition to their normal baseload. So out of the U.S. Gulf, you're seeing uh, VLCCs being paid over $8 million to take a load from the U.S. Gulf to China where prior to the disruption, you were somewhere around $6 million. So the market, uh, tanker markets have been looking for those, the signs quite finely balanced for us to kick off into Q4. And it looks like this is the impetus that we needed. Well, let me just jump in. Uh, you, you mentioned that these were up about $20,000 a day. To, to what level? To about 50000 and again, we're fixing forward. We're fixing into October, you know, so, but this is up off a very, um, you know, pretty lackluster Q3. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, Q3 is, of course, always, well, not always, but usually one of the weakest quarters of the year. So it's, it's good to see, like you said, these, these pretty good rates in, in this part of the year. So, you know, when, when the disruption first happened, there was some fear that this would take, like you said, about 6 million barrels right off the market. And you'd actually see a tumble in rates. I think uh, a few of the analysts uh, Sunday, we're actually discussing, you know, how terrible this was going to be for the tanker markets. 
Um, is there a situation where this would bring the rates down? Is that just if, if Saudi Arabia production doesn't come back online for months? Or what's your what's your concern, on, I guess, on the bearish side of this? Well, we, hey, Jay, Jeff, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in uh, just to play tag team here. So, yeah, we saw that over the weekend, and I, you know, we thought that that, that understandable first reaction was, was maybe uh, misguided, and it's proved out to be just the way Lois said, because while that would mean that some production is down, obviously is down for some period of time in Saudi. Uh, the immediate effect is that, that any barrels that were meant to be lifted were coming out of their inventory anyway, and they would continue to come out of their inventory, or not just in Saudi, but in other places around the world where they keep it. Uh, so we didn't see it as, as a drop in demand for tankers, just a change in the pattern for that, uh, for that amount, you know, as long as it's not a permanent uh, drop, and we, we don't see that. Secondarily, we did expect an increase in rates because we know from past cycles and past geopolitical events, this kind of stuff has happened before many times in most of my career. What happens is if you're uh, purchasing crude oil for your refiner, wherever it is, in China, India, Europe, wherever, and you see this going on, your first instinct is, I need to diversify my sources immediately, right? So, uh, it, so you see peop, uh, those those customers reaching for barrels from sources that are inevitably inevitably further away than the Arabian Gulf, uh, whether it's West Africa, Brazil, or of course the U.S. So that that was what filtered through the market rather beginning right away on Monday and has led to this increase. It's it's really uh, the reaction of, of purchasing managers uh, and, and, and the like diversifying uh, and not being terribly sensitive to a little increase in, in rates, which as you know, Jay. Uh, the cost of transporting oil is actually quite small relative to the cost of the commodity. So just it's, what's key is to make sure that your supply chain is is intact. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeff. And and yeah, I mean, we're on the same wavelength. I'm not sure if you saw it, but we had a actually an op-ed in Splash uh, on Monday, and we also had an article out on Seeking Alpha on Tuesday, kind of discussing how, in fact, this, this structurally could be a bullish thing for tankers, right? It's, there's more and more shift towards West of Suez whether it's Brazil or, or U.S. Gulf or whatever the route may be. Um, shifting a little bit to the U.S. Gulf, uh, two questions for you. Um, first of all, how are we seeing those export numbers? I know that the U.S. has been kind of capacity constrained for a while, uh, both in terms of they don't have VLCC capacity yet, uh, so there's lightering there, and also because some of the pipelines haven't been constructed. So how are you seeing that as far as the recent growth and limitations? And then secondly, um, you mentioned uh, U.S. to China. Was that just kind of speaking to Asia more broadly, or is China actually starting to purchase some oil on the market? So if I take the, the first question, Jay, out of the U.S. Gulf, I'm always quoting the numbers that the EIA puts up, which is really total U.S. exports, which, you know, last week was like 3.2 million barrels a day. But if you if you look at it and you say, okay, I only want pad three, U.S. Gulf only, you're, you're somewhere around 2.9 million barrels a day. Uh, we spoke with ESAI on what they're building into their models, because I'm curious how much uh, additional can we export? And they have us going up to 3.2 to 3.6 in uh, the first quarter, somewhere in between there. So that's around a half a million barrels a day that they have additional um, getting out of the U.S. Gulf exporting. Anecdotally, we, we, we are aware, uh, I was on one of our VLCCs, that was loading uh, like a month ago out of the U.S. Gulf in Corpus Christi, and she was able to take a half cargo, about a million barrels, at the dock, and that's a new dock that was um, rapidly being constructed. 
And then she was topping up with barrels at the lightering. So you're already seeing uh, incremental uh, decrease in, you know, the, the constraints. And we know that Epic and Cactus, those pipelines, have, have now uh, been completed. So it's just how quickly all this infrastructure gets put together so that you can get those additional barrels out to market. But it looks like, uh, you know, into the first quarter, we would we should be able to add at least a half a million barrels a day. Um, you know, each V is 2 million barrels, and you're looking at about somewhere around 110 uh, days for a round trip. So you're really adding a, a lot of uh, additional VLCC demand into uh, the system. And then I do use uh, China as a proxy. I believe that the specific uh, cargo I was talking about was U.S. Gulf to Korea, but it it will not surprise me to see the Chinese come back in. Uh, again, uh, crude does have that 5% um, premium on it from the tariffs, but uh, as Jeff pointed out, it's pretty small when you start talking about the value of, of the cargo and um, the, 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 the freight uh, component being quite a small uh, part of the fraction. Excellent, Lois. Thank you. Yeah, indeed. there's always kind of a lot of discussion about U.S.-China specific, right? And it's interesting to see that, you know, with yeah. the kind of trade war tensions, there hasn't been a lot of trade directly, right? But there's a lot of oil that gets rerouted, you know, whether it's Singapore or Korea or whatever it might be. I, you know, I, I brought up the uh, EIA chart uh, on our live chat, and, you know, I'll show that when we post an article and follow up. But it's just interesting for those who are listening in. I mean, you can see that the U.S. exports were basically nothing, right, because of regulations and, and, and stuff like that. Prohibiting Absolutely. Exports. And then in 2017, right in the fall, is when they first passed a million barrels a day. Then less than a year later, you're already at two million. And then early 2019, you're at three. Um, and then probably early 2020, we're going to crack maybe four million barrels a day. So it's it's really just a fantastic uh, increase, right, in those exports. And you know, every barrel, as we've covered from you know the U.S. Gulf to Asia, is is double, right, the distance of, of the Middle East Gulf. Uh, so long term, it would seem, right, that disruption is is positive for the industry as long as it's just in terms of a shift and not like a massive, you know, offtake of oil off the market. Absolutely. Um, and any anything highly dramatic, Jay, would, would not be positive. But just to, to elaborate a little bit on that, in the old days, like, say, 10 years ago, what would happen is there would be enough uh, crude coming into the United States from Saudi, so loading heavy Sour, which the U.S. refineries are designed for, coming from the AG Arabian Gulf to the U.S. Gulf, and there'd be enough tankers in the basin then to load in the U.S. Gulf uh, to go east. However, because now you have um, such an amount of uh, exports out of the U.S. Gulf, it's totally changed the trading patterns, and you see VLCCs routinely now ballasting in empty to get a load and go out. And, and that uh, really adds ton miles into our equation. Yeah, and that's an interesting development. It's, it's not just uh, kind of recycling triangulation. It's actually dedicated uh, routes developing out of there. Um, I, I think we've really uh, you know hit the Saudi disruption well and, and kind of talked about some of those catalysts. Uh, let's talk about the next kind of upcoming thing. So IMO 2020, we're just three months away. Uh, if you're burning compliant fuel, it's it's almost time to start loading up the tanks with that stuff. Uh, so what kind of you see in the market so far and how are you positioned specifically to international seaways for this? So I, I think the thing that has... Uh, taking me a bit by surprise, although it, it, sh it shouldn't have, is the uh, refiners are being both opportunistic and planning well forward. So you've got, uh, let's take Singapore, where 
a lot of the uh, barges and tanks that have been dedicated to heavier bunkers, the 3.5 sulfur content, are now being taken off the market, cleaned, and being used for to store 0.5 sulfur. So we're in that interesting uh, couple of month period where nobody really wants to buy 0.5 sulfur because we don't need to burn it until Jan 1. And the result is that it's adding inefficiency into our market because now if you are having to potentially wait to get your high sulfur bunkers wherever you are, whether it's the U.S. Gulf or it's in Singapore, and those barrels are being priced up. Now, that is just an interim because come January 1st, something like 70% of the demand for uh, the high sulfur will drop away, and we expect for that price to drop dramatically. So we're really managing our inventory on all of our vessels extremely closely. We're planning every voyage. Um, as I mentioned, the VLCC trips are very long, so you want to just be very careful so that uh, you are, are planning everything quite closely. For us specifically, we are going to put uh, the scrubbers, the installation of those onto our 10 modern VLCCs. Our economics there are based somewhere around $200 a ton, and if you look at the forward curve, uh, where some, you know, looks to be somewhere around that, and in that case, uh, that investment would pay off for us in a year and a half, and then, you know, we, we would have those uh, extra profits uh, to the bottom line. I don't know if you want to add anything, Jeff, on that. Well, I might add one thing, uh, Jay, kind of in your question, I think, is what have we seen in terms of effect on the tanker market so far? And interestingly, we would, would say that it, IMO 2020 has probably more impacted the crude segment of the market at this point in time than the product. Uh, we think that this counter-seasonal spike you saw in, in rates in August was an indication that refiners are pulling more crude in uh, or different uh, patterns of crude in either way leading to, to, to more traffic and higher rates as they began to gear up for 2020, IMO 2020. Uh, so I think it'll hit the product tankers next, uh, most likely as, as the 0.5 content comes out, it starts to be moved around to various places around the world where it needs to be as, as ships bunker up in November and December getting ready for January 1. Yeah, that makes sense. And thanks for jumping into that, Jeff, because we've been watching the markets as well. And there's been kind of an angst, I guess, in product tanker uh, investors. And, and I'm definitely one of them where, you know, we've been waiting for the next, you know, bullish cycle for the last seven, eight, nine, <laughs> ten years. So, it, you know, we've been looking at this IMO 2020 event and saying, hey, is this going to be, you know, August, September, October, what, right? And and like you said, we saw that spike in, in crude tanker rates and then also, the, you know, the big off-hire, right, as people are installing scrubbers. But we haven't really seen a spike in, in products yet. So um, if you had to guess, would you, would you think that's like an October event or a November event or if you had to kind of pinpoint it a little bit? You know, Jay, if, if, you know, not to go off topic, but if we pop back up to the Saudi event, right now, you, you know, everything happens in increments. And what you're seeing is the Saudis not putting out their products, which were traditionally then exported because they're sacrificing. They want to put uh, barrels for crude export and they're sacrificing their refinery runs. So temporarily, I think uh, it causes some uh, consternation on LR1s and LR2s. However, the longer that happens and the Saudis prioritize their crude exports, they will then start to import more product. 
and all of a sudden you'll see that market react. And that's in, I'm talking uh, the midsection of the, of the fleet, LR1s, LR2s, and then you should see that move. Remember that right now we're in refinery, still turnaround in the U.S. Gulf. Uh, utilization rates went down 5% week on week. So the U.S. Gulf is pushing out more crude right now, less product. They'll come back online October, November, and you'll start to see that product move in, in a much greater way. You know, we are we have, as you know, in our fleet, both crude and product. So this is a nice thing about having a diversified fleet is we're kind of agnostic as to, you know, which does, which segment gets helped or aided first, which comes on later. It's difficult to say for all these factors, but kind of uh, either way, uh, we're, we're well positioned. But I, but I think Lois said it well, that as you get deeper in the fourth quarter, that the product should, should really yield some good effects. Yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to see. It's kind of a prediction, right, for a one-two punch as Saudi Arabia causes a little bit of kind of reallocation and, and disruption there. And then you also have, of course, IMO 2020 coming on board. So it'll be interesting yeah. to watch that. Um, shifting a little bit to, to talk about your company more specifically, and, and you kind of segued that a little bit talking about how you have some product tankers. But the uh, the cash balance is, is pretty strong. Right, uh, your balance sheets are the strongest they've ever been. Uh, so, with that in mind, as we as we look ahead to IMO 2020 and and the other bullish backdrop in the market, uh, what are your capital allocation priorities at this time? Are we looking into uh, perhaps more secondhand acquisitions? Are we looking into any more fleet investments like scrubbers? Uh, any sort of uh, repurchases or dividends? Uh, how would you rank those allocation priorities at this time? Jay, let me take a crack at that. So, uh, I, for for the benefit of those that are listening now or reading the transcript later, I, I think uh, many know that International Seaways is just less than three years old. Although we were spun off of OSG, so have a 60-year-plus history, and and, and so, uh, but that's good context to say what have we done in terms of capital allocation since we were born, so to speak, in the spinoff, and and what we've done is to spend $600 million in cash, uh, plus earmarking $50 million more for scrubbers and ballast water treatment. So $650 million total capital allocation cash to upgrading, or as they'd say in the energy business, high grade in the fleet, you know, making it larger and younger at the same time, and doing it at the bottom of the cycle. Bottom of the market. And without issuing any equity. Uh, so so we, that was our capital allocation principle first and foremost, and that we've accomplished over the last couple of years. And, and thanks for noticing it. We did it without getting over levered. We stopped when we got to the point that we were 50% loan to value. That's that's the self-imposed leverage limit we wanted to, to hit, and we hit it, and, and we're, we're comfortable with that. Now, you notice the cash is is, is a pretty good number. It was $150 million at the last quarter, with plus $50 million of undrawn revolver, so $200 million of, of liquidity. Uh, now, remember, a good portion of that is earmarked for the scrubbers because we didn't need any, don't need any outside financing for our scrubbers. You know, whether it's more debt or raising equity, we don't need that. So some of that is earmarked for that. But we did and and say in our last quarterly conference call that this level uh, of, of liquidity means that we can begin to think about a different type of capital allocation, which is a phase where we are deleveraging and ultimately returning cash to shareholders. So we began that process with a $10 million. It wasn't big, but it was a start uh, of, of additional pay down of our terminal B debt than, than, than we would have had to pay. So that's a little deleveraging act. And we expect as, as these cash flow comes in from these rates in, in, the, in the end of the third and fourth quarter, that you should expect to see more from us in, in the way of 
deleveraging and uh, and returning cash to shareholders. In which area, I'd remind you that we have a $30 million um, share repurchase program in place. So I think that's our priority for right now, Jay. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, and I appreciate a bit of the uh, historical context there as well. I, you know, one thing I did not hear uh, in terms of what you're talking about, you know, currently or, or near term going forward is is, a, is fleet growth. Um, is that a, a kind of a deliberate uh, that you're leaving that out of there, or do you think your fleet is large enough as is, or are you still looking at perhaps more secondhand acquisitions? Well, Jay, there's there's always more work to be done in, in the in the sense of um, you know continuing to uh, renew the fleet. However, to Jeff's point, you know, when we did our investments that we've done today, that took care of several years of renewal. And we just want to make sure that we're doing the right things at the right place in the cycle. And that's why our emphasis and our focus has shifted to deleveraging and returning cash to shareholders. Yeah, thanks, Lois. I, you know, as we're still kind of on the topic of capital allocation, and you know, we just kind of wrapped up talking about IMO 2020. Uh, you've committed to 10 scrubbers on your VLs. Uh, is there room for further additions of, of those uh, scrubbers on, on more of your fleet, or is 10 pretty much all you're considering at this point? I, we have those two beautiful uh, Suez Maxes uh, delivered in 217 from Hyundai, highly efficient. You know, sometimes uh, that those would be the ones that uh, if if we were to do more, we would do. But right now, we're, we're pretty content where we're at. And, and let me just add a little bit of math uh, that, that Lois and I talk about a lot, which is, you know, it's 10 vessels. But, but given that we have a diversified fleet from large like these to, to smaller vessels, uh, while only 25% of our conventional tankers, those 10 vessels amount to about 40% of our bunker consumption. So we have a good commitment to, to, to scrub fleet. So, uh, but beyond that, I think we'll we'll watch and see what the regulators do as far as how you know how long will scrubbers be an important factor for tankers overall. I guess something we'll we'll monitor as we go into 2020. Makes sense. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks, Lois. I, you know, as we're you kind of mentioned, kind of doing the math, if you will, and, and you talked about how the forward kind of scrubber curve, uh, both estimate and what you're expecting, and both what the market's actually showing is about $200 per ton. Uh, so, you know, the way you know TCE is calculated for those kind of listening in, uh, they take the raw revenues, right, and you subtract the voyage cost, basically bunker fuel. So those who have scrubbers can burn the older, you know, uh, higher sulfur fuel with those scrubbers, and therefore their fuel costs will be lower. Uh, so that's going to result in a higher reported TCE. So in terms of doing the math, I'll kind of you know bounce that back to you, either Jeff or Lois. Um, what sort of TCE benefit are you expecting to see versus some of your peers that maybe didn't install those scrubbers? We know that there are a lot of moving parts into every uh, individual calculation, but if you were just to say uh, very roughly, right, $200 a ton, 50 tons a day, $10,000 a day, Jay. Excellent. Thanks. Obviously, you can't just pick one exact number, and that's correct, but it is is good for people to understand that you know we're talking about significant savings. Uh, with these scrubbers. And of course, for your benefit, right, you're hoping that the spreads are as large as possible. Um, you mentioned $200 on the spreads. Is, what kind of movement have you seen recently on those spreads? All of the outright prices have been uh, fluctuating dramatically. If you just look at the actual bunker market that we're subjected to today, right now, this week, bunker prices went up by 20%. From last Friday and then down from 20% from last Friday, you know, just within this week. So, you know, you're seeing uh, bunker prices fluctuating on the outright back of crude prices dramatically presently. 
And the forward curves are fairly illiquid at present, especially on the 0.5. So I, I, I think it is really, uh, really a market that's moving around, Jay. And, you know, we're, we're being as tactical as we can within the pools where we operate commercially to make sure that you don't, you know, what you don't didn't want to do on Monday morning was panic and try to chase uh, a bunker stem when the prices were, were spiked, you know, a little bit of patience, um, the market settles itself and, and then you're more able to uh, get a good economic deal. Yeah. And let me, let me add there, Jay, I mean, something Lois mentioned earlier is, you know, because uh, of logistical changes in the bunkering ports uh, and other preparations for IMO 2020 at the present time, you, you know, uh, the, the 3.5, the high sulfur fuel, you know, is more expensive, which makes the spread look, narrower. Correct. But that's because, as Lois said, uh, we're, we're all wanting to buy or, or using the 3.5 right now, uh, and 70% of that demand falls away uh, automatically on January 1. I mean, everything except for scrubbers or non-compliance. Uh, so so it, you, it's natural that naturally you'd expect that price to then drop and the spread would, would widen. And the, as you know, the, the forward curves that, uh, are not that great in predicting, uh, or they're heavily affected by what's going on today. And and what we expect is that there will be a couple hundred dollars of spread or wider. But you know what? If it's not, we're still looking at a payback of, of like, say, two years instead right. of one year on these scrubbers. So we kind of feel like it's a good capital expenditure decision for the company yes. regardless. And then we have the rest of the fleet where, you know, they'll, they'll uh, where we haven't invested in scrubbers. So we have a little bit of a natural balance. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And like you mentioned, it's, it's around 40%, I, I believe you said, if it was in terms of uh, deadweight tonnage, right, as opposed to just uh, nominal numbers of ships. So it, it's easy to say, hey, they only have 10 scrubbers, but it's really, you know, nearly half the fleet right at that point. I, th- I think we had a, a pretty good overview of kind of the, the market principles and, and where the company, what the company is doing and, and where the priorities lie. So now sort of a, a difficult segue, if you will. We have, I'm a long-term investor in international seaways, and we have a lot of investors on the call, and I'm sure people listening later. Uh, you know, the reality is that seaways trades at a steep discount to, to the majority of your peers. So let's dig into that just a little bit. So first of all, you know, why do you think that might be that the Seaways trades at kind of a discount? Um, and, and then why should investors right now, why should they consider your right, Seaways? If they look at a one-year chart, they're going to see a lot of underperformance. Why, why should they buy Seaways now? And then finally, kind of wrapping it all together, uh, what are you doing specifically to uh, try to drive value in a per share basis? So I'm going to start and uh, Jeff's going to take off from there, Jay. So international Seaways, has been independent and, and on the New York Stock Exchange since uh, we're coming up on about two and a half years. And if you go back from the spin-out and you look at our performance against our peers over the last two years, we, we will stack up quite nicely. If you shift to uh, recently, we, we have a good response for that. Well, one thing, uh, Jay, that, that, that your listeners and readers should know is that uh, uh, it's a bit of a technical factor, but it's 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 one really to to take note of is that at the time of our spinoff, we had about forty percent of our share shares held by uh, kind of private equity or PE type investors who had had, had funded uh, the company in the past before the spinoff, and uh, about twenty five percent of that forty percent has been sold in the last twelve months. So there's been a lot of selling by what I'll call former insiders. It amounts to, to over 20% of our, our, our daily trading. And that's really good in the long run because, you know, that's, that so-called overhang has been substantially reduced uh, to, to now where we just have one 
uh, shareholder that has 13%. They sit on a board. They're a great influence uh, for, for bringing that kind of uh, uh, perspective on the board. But the others that were not committed you know, have largely gone out. And so while that was sort of hurt in the short term, uh, it, it's really good for our float in the long term. So then I think it leaves you with, with okay, here's International Seaways. Uh, thank you. You said we had a nice balance sheet. We, we do. We're going to improve it most likely by – uh, by changing around some of the debt there and, and reducing some of the costs and optimizing it for this new newer fleet that we have now. Um, but we are, we have the operating leverage. It's one thing we haven't talked about in this call is that we, we have with 40 tankers uh, all on spot, you know, as we go to this higher market, you know, every $1,000 a day of, of TCE rate is over $14 million EBITDA, 50 cents per share EPS. So, we get, we're looking at a lot of upside going into this market, a good balance sheet, terrific corporate governance. I think you know we're ranked number one tanker company for, for corporate governance, and we're proud of that. So I think we have all the pieces in place. We've had a couple of these technical headwinds, you know, so that, that, that has led to maybe the, the price being a little lower than others, but I think it's a real opportunity for investors. Yes. So do you agree, Lois? I, I agree 100%, Jeff. Building off of that, you know, we, we have a diversified fleet where uh, the, the vessels across the space are uh, starting to do as we expected into Q4 with the market recovery, and we're extremely well positioned. So we really believe we're we are probably one of the best bargains out there, if not the best. Well, thanks, uh, Lois and Jeff, and and yeah, we we certainly agree that that Seaways is is definitely one of the top bargains, and you know that's why we bought the stock. And uh, of course, the technical uh, constraints of, of major uh, shareholders exiting. Right, it right, has been pretty painful. Um, what about in terms of uh, repurchases? Is there an avenue to drive value in that way? Well, oh, Jay, as I mentioned before, uh, I think I did, but I'll, I'll say it now. We have a $30 million share repurchase program in place. We, you know, uh, up until recently, we were building cash to be able to uh, fund uh, the, the, the CapEx program for scrubbers and ballast water treatment. As I said, we uh, allocated uh, $10 million to, uh, to, to deleveraging, and we've said, that share purchase is, is part of a, what we think is good capital allocation right now. Now, there are some constraints in some of our debt on that. So it's not going to be a massive amount, at least uh, until we uh, rejigger the, the, or re, retool the balance sheet, shall we say, a little bit. So that, that's a factor, but we are able to buy back shares and do think that's good capital allocation. So I think you would expect that coming from us in the future. Excellent. Thanks, Jeff. And, and you mentioned kind of a constraints with debt there. Um, first of all, are there any specific uh, covenants that, that restrict repurchases? And if so, kind of what's the ballpark on those? And then secondly, uh, you know, your cost of capital, not just equity capital, uh, your cost of debt capital is also really high uh, relative to some of your peers. Uh, is there sort of a strategic vision of, of refinancing into a more of a traditional secured loan structure or any, any thought on that? Look, it's not a specific amount covenant. It's just that as with a number of capital, our, our at the moment, our largest debt facility is something called a term loan B. It's it's a it's a legally a bank loan type of a instrument, but it's it's sold in the capital markets like a bond. And like bonds, it has typical uh, restrictions on on uh, uh, restricted payments, and they move based on uh, income, et cetera. So there isn't any one number I can give you, but I just say it's generally relatively to traditional bank financing, it's more constraining. So you combine that with your other uh, question is, yeah, that also is a little higher cost of capital. 
And, and by the way, you know, it's history, okay, but, but, but history is relevant. And the higher cost of that was because uh, we, 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 we took a little higher coupon on that rather than issuing equity last year when we were buying $450 million of vessels. So that was a fine trade-off at the time, but where we're headed for now is to reduce that cost by using more, most likely more traditional ship financing in, in, in large part, which will be uh, several hundred basis points lower. So that would be a twin benefit of, of lower cost uh, and, and uh, greater flexibility for capital allocation. That's what we're, what we're looking for. And, and we do, Jay, just to be a little bit more specific and kind of, we do have um, adequate room to do share repurchases as we determine that, that that's appropriate, even presently. Yeah, exactly. Okay, thanks, Lois and Jeff. And you know, I, I've heard the thirty million dollar repurchase mentioned twice uh, so far in the discussion. And I, I, but I know it's been on the books for a while, and we haven't actually seen it utilized. So I'm hoping that uh, when you report Q3 earnings here in in six weeks or so, that uh, we'll actually see a little bit of that utilization. So uh, fingers crossed from out here. Uh, it's clearly the uh, most accretive uh, allocation of capital at this point, uh, especially now that you've already funded your scrubber program. Uh, real quick, I, I'd like to pivot a little bit to talk about your joint ventures. Uh, you have two of them, I believe, one with that does FSOs, a uh, 50-50 partnership with Euronav, and then the other one uh, works yes. with Qatar, right, for, for LNG shipping. So how do you view those as far as the company? Are these core uh, to the future uh, structure of the company? And uh, if not, what is kind of the plan with those? So we, we have, um, you know, on the FSOs uh, that have been on the field uh, in Qatar, our counterparty is North Oil Company, which is a joint venture between Qatar Petroleum and Total. And the FSOs are really in what uh, we call the harvesting part of the, the uh, their life cycle. They're on charter through the third quarter of 2022. And we, we anticipate them staying on the field for foreseeable future. And those counterparts are extremely strong uh, and have been, uh, our, our FSOs have had zero off hire on those fields since 2010. We expect to receive $18 million pushed through to us from the FSOs this year in 2019. On the LNG, it's, it's smaller. It's more on the, on the around three to five million. However, going forward on the LNG, uh, somewhere around 2021, 2022, when we refinance, we'll start throwing off $15 million through to INSW annually. So what they have been uh, through the downturn in the market is really nice, stable cash flow that allowed for us to position ourselves for the upturn and keeping everything else spot because we had this additional cash coming through. That being said, we don't view either of them particularly as core, and we're looking to unlock shareholder value from them as we renew contracts and as we look for alternatives for those joint ventures. Excellent. Thanks, Lois. I appreciate the thorough answer on that one. I, you know, very interesting on the LNG uh, potential refinancing catalyst. That wasn't something I've been tracking. Is is there a sort of, uh, I understand it's aspirational at this point, but is there a sort of a timeline where that could get done? Well, the... the, the uh, Debt is a uh, natural window is uh, coming due 2022. Um, however, uh, Jeff is pretty preemptive. Well, yeah, no, it, it's it's very uh, clear cut that the, there's a maturity on the existing debt. It's non-recourse to us, just on the joint venture itself. But but that debt matures in at the end of uh, uh, in 2022. So we'll be we and our joint venture partner will be looking to redo that you know, at least a year ahead of time or coming uh, into it. So we still got a little time to go before that is likely to change over. 
to doing a higher dividend, but it's not you know it's not, not that far, far away. not that far away and. Uh, uh, to be very achievable. Yeah, it's a, you know it's an interesting situation with your your JVs. I mean, you mentioned that that they provide a cash flow stability to the company, and that's always been a positive. You know, the way we've looked at it. So, you know, whether or not they maintain they they remain core or not, uh, you know, they have benefited you to this point. Uh, it seems like a lot of the, the analysts out there that either calculate your NAV or just set up price targets, uh, they don't really give you any sort of value for those joint ventures. Uh, so that would be maybe a consideration of hey, if we divest these, yeah, they're great, but if we divest them, maybe our shares will appreciate uh, because of simplicity. So, so definitely something to consider there. Um, in terms of you know where you trade at versus your peers, I mentioned that you trade at a significant discount. And I mean, if you look at a year-to-date chart or even a one-year chart, uh, I mean, the performance gap is pretty large. I mean, year-to-date, like you said, uh, there's been a lot of selling, right? So year-to-date, I think you guys are up about 10% uh, versus your three peers. Your now is about 25%. And DHT is almost 50% and frontline is about 60%, right? So there's a big big gap there. Uh, there is a chance to create a lot of value for shareholders with those repurchases, uh, but I also understand there is a kind of desire to have a marketable float, right, with those shares. Now, your float's gotten bigger, right, with the private equity firms selling off, um, but what is kind of a reasonable float target where, where you would be okay with, hey, I'm willing to repurchase, was it 1 million shares, 5 million shares? What, what is something that's realistic for you to consider? Well, I'll just answer it this way. I think that, that you're you're right. Uh, thank you. The float and the trading liquidity is uh, is darn good. I mean, sometimes people look at shares, and, and a number of our peers are trading at low dollar amounts, and so they have higher number of shares traded. But when you look at what I think counts as dollar amounts, and we're you know sort of averaging four to five million dollars a day of trading. So you know that falls right in the middle of the peer group. If you look at crude and product tanker companies, which we do. So we think we have good liquidity now. It's only getting better as as some of these insiders have sold off. So, so I I don't think that there's a issue with liquidity as we consider whether or not to do share repurchases. I just don't think that's a constraint. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It, it's good to hear that. I, I've heard that you know used as, as sort of a uh, alibi or excuse by a lot of companies. They say, well, we don't want to you know hurt our our share liquidity. Well, yeah, I mean, I can see that is maybe a consideration, but you also want to throw your shareholders a bone and, and show them that you're on the same side and that you're allocated. Uh, last sort of question on this topic, and I think we've had a really good interview today just to kind of close this one up. Um, how is your uh, performance compensation as far as you know executive pay? Is that related to a share performance at all, or is that just a flat amount? No, absolutely. Uh, we, we have, and it's all uh, available in the proxy, we have a fairly uh, comprehensive uh, compensation system. It is based on, uh, you know, various KPIs and metrics that, that range uh, from operational uh, safety statistics, uh, us versus uh, competition regarding our um, time chart equivalent earnings, you know, all the way through to uh, you know, shares that are based on us versus our peer group. So it, it is a, it, we are, are keenly aware, and, and I would suggest uh, that you, you might see a different slope to the curve going forward, and I would sell my uh, other guys and buy some INSW. Excellent. Thanks, Lois. Yeah, I figured, you know, there's there's a good portion of your uh, forward pay that is based on the uh, share price performance. So we all want to make money here. Investors are definitely looking for uh, INSW to close that gap and, and likely, in fact, outperform uh, peers going forward. And I'm sure that helps you as well. Uh, so with that said, it looks like we're aligned and we've had a pretty good discussion today. I'll uh, you know close this one out. And then if any of our folks have follow-ups, I'll make sure to email those to you and, and get those responses back. Uh, thanks very much for your time, Jeff and Lois. I appreciate you joining us today.
Thank you very much. We appreciate the opportunity to get INSW out in front of people. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening to our live discussion with Lois DeBrocki and Jeff Prybor, CEO and CFO of International Seaways. For disclosure, I am personally long shares of INSW. Feel free to join our research platform and take place in future discussions. To read my research, please navigate to seekingalpha.com and search for Jay Mintzmeyer. To access our premium content, you can navigate direct to mintzmeyer.com. That's M-I-N-T-Z-M-Y-E-R.com to sign up for a free trial.